Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. Yep, it's our very special Sunday Mailbag Edition. Getting to the pointy end of the year, or the end of the year anyway, I wonder how pointy it is. I am Scott Phillips, of course, the Motley Fool's Chief Investment Officer, and my fellow pointy end of the year E is Andrew Page from Strawman. How are you, mate? I'm good, Scott. How's things? Mate, things are excellent. You are from Strawman. I haven't asked you in a little while, mate. What is Strawman again? You ask me every single week, but I, I appreciate it. I always go on Friday. Yeah. I forgot, but I have to remember now. We're an online private investment club. Very good. Sounds good. <laughs> in fact, we did get a question from a listener who is keen for you to open up some more spots from the watch list, from the wait lifts, I should say. So uh, Probably well in the keen. new year at some point, yeah. There you yep. go. Yep. So get on the wait list if you want to join strawman.com or go to fool.com.au as well, otherwise my boss gets grumpy. Mate, um, let's start with a question from Clive, just a really, well, simple question in its design and its form, a complex and difficult answer potentially. Why, Clive asks, do bank stocks go down after a good financial report? I'm, I own shares in Bendigo Bank and they had a great report, but their prices continued to drop. And then three question marks. I'm going to assume that's a question. It's a good one, mate. Good report. Shares down. What's going on? Yeah, it, it happens a lot. Um, uh, sometimes you get a really bad result and shares fly up. So it, it's <laughs> <laughs> it's all about the future mm. um, and and the market's perception or feelings of of towards that. So you can have a really so the what what gets reported is what happened in the past, mm-hmm. and it may have been a really good year, but maybe within when releasing that information, they sort of said, listen, we expect challenges and headwinds in the year ahead or they've oh, just headwinds. said something that the market's gone a little bit worried about. Maybe it's <laughs> nothing they've said. Maybe it's just broader macro environment. People in regard to the banks are a bit concerned about their exposure, rising interest rate. I, I don't know, whatever it happens to be. So it's it it, it can happen a lot <laughs> and it can be frustrating. But um, mm. as we were actually just speaking about a bit off air, it's, sometimes it's a great mm. thing when you have – a company report good results mm-hmm. where everything seems structurally in place. Mm-hmm. The long-term future remains as bright as it ever does and the shares fall off. It's actually a nice combination. If, unless you were like actually needing or expecting to sell uh, at, at that point in time. Yeah. If not, like hooray, um, you know, buy some more shares. Assuming they're actually cheap enough to buy because sometimes, as you say, a good report and shares going down exactly what should happen in which yes. doesn't necessarily even mean it's cheaper. I'm going to add a layer to that, mate. Your answer is perfect. Um, I'm going to add a layer though, which is that it's relative to the expectations of the market, mm. not just the absolute numbers they put out. So if Bendigo's future was great, but the market thought it would be spectacularly great, mm. then the shares can still fall. Mm. So it's I I have jokingly, but with a decent degree of seriousness over the last few months, and frankly, the last few years, but on the podcast, referred to earnings season as expectations season. Because mm. it very much is absolutely about the future, as you say, Ram. Sometimes it's about the past as well, by the way. If the results are terrible, the, 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 the market will say, well, hang on, if that was terrible, the future is probably going to be terrible too. So mm. it, you know, it's, it can only be about the future. You're only ever buying next year's profit, not last year's profit, but... It can give you a, or the market a bit of a sense of what next year's profit is likely to be. Mm-hmm. Um, example that I mentioned, we've been asked questions about it, but Kogan, of course, a company I own, uh, profit in and of itself was terrible for probably explainable reasons. But the market said, well, if that was bad, then the future is probably going to be equally as bad. So therefore, mm-hmm. and it extrapolates, and that's why the share price comes down. And that's not unreasonable if you don't expect things to change. Mm-hmm. Um, but as it, it's versus expectations, right? So as you say, you can have a terrible result, the shares go up because the market was expecting worse. And the same for the future. A company says, hey, future's going to be really good. Or, as you said, mate, future's going to be, you know, bad. And the market's like, oh, I thought it was going to be worse than that. And the shares mm. can go up. So it's always, Clive, a question of 
What did the market think? And now you don't have to know the answer to that question, by the way. Um, so I'm not, when I, I was about to say, it's about what the market was going to think. You think, well, okay, if I work that out, then you know, you're kind of bluffing and double bluffing and second and second guessing and second guessing. It gets ugly really fast. Just bear in mind, all they're really saying is, look, the future of the business based on our expectation of what's going to happen is X. We had it priced for Y or Z and the price will go up or down accordingly. That's kind of what the story is, mate. Um, and it makes sense, right? If I... Mm. You know, if, if if I knew that, um, if I had a news agent, I use that example a lot, but let me keep using it. Uh, and I had a cracking year last year, great results. But I also knew that uh, the newspaper and, and greeting card businesses were going to stop printing cards and papers in six months' time. I said, "Well, but you should buy a pay off for my shares. Look at last year's profit." You'd be like, "Mate, I'm not an idiot. I'm not buying. Your business is going to go broke in six months. Like, well, I'm not going to pay based on last year's results." Um, and that can be the result, Clive. So it can be, it can be, you know, as it better or worse than expected, um, as Andrew said, but also what they're expecting in future and what that was previously. Now, if, if the news is worth zero because it's going to die in six months and it's not going to be six months, it's going to be 12 months or the rest of the business is still pretty good, mm. then that's when you can have an overreaction. The market says, oh my God, every news agent is going to, every newspaper is going to close. And so they, you know, news is worth zero. And then someone says, but hang on, they sell chocolates and bubble gum and stationery and whatever else. And so there's some, some, some value there. They're worth more than zero. And again, that's where you can have some upside as well. Just in regard to Bendigo, though, it's mm. been a pretty awful performer, hasn't it? I mean, shares yeah. are pretty much in a broad channel gone sideways for 10 years. Mate, tell so. me you didn't just say in a broad channel gone sideways. <laughs> well, you got to be careful. If I say sideways, we go, oh, no, 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 it got up to here and it got down to there. Yeah, in I mean, a broad channel? It, Come on. It, it's just- it's, You're better than it, that. <laughs> it's hard not to use the lingo sometimes. Yeah, isn't um, it? <laughs> but, you know, they, yes, they paid 55 cents in dividends last year. A few years ago, it was 70 cents. Yeah. 2013, yeah. it was 61 cents. It's sort yeah. of, the thing is, I think with- Trend's with, not great. <laughs> Put it that way. Yeah. I mean, I would sort of say, I mean, it's definitely not worth zero and you're getting a 6% yield or something yeah. on that. Yeah. And, and and what's interesting is that you've actually done that in an environment where property's gone nuts, yeah. right? So it's kind of sort of like, well, if this is what you do with incredible mm-hmm. tailwind, <laughs> yeah, you know, what do you do with, if yeah. things ever yeah. kind of get tough? So, I mean, I thought, yeah. I'm not going to put the boot in too hard here. If, if all your <laughs> goal is just to broadly maintain your capital and get mm-hmm. a pretty attractive dividend along the way, uh, maybe the total return ends up being with franking credits, you know, 7 maybe 8% per year. It's mm-hmm. not, it's not, mm-hmm. not the end of the world. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's it it's just it's noteworthy. <laughs> I think that that in in such an environment, it's really not not done that well. Fair, fair, mate. Um, let's uh, let's move on. Uh, great question, Clive. Thank you for asking. Give us a chance to discover that. Um, question from Gary. Question for the mailbag on the square purchase of Afterpay. Now, Gary asks the very existential question, which is: Was it really a purchase if they are buying the business with shares? Isn't this more of a merger? A square really didn't outlay any cash and the square shares after the purchase would effectively be worth both businesses combined. Everyone's going on about the massive $39 billion they paid. However, if they're just issuing shares, did they really pay that much? Cheers from Gary. So many layers to this one, mate. Have a go. Mm. Yeah, well, the short answer is yes. Absolutely they did. It's not, it's not fiat currency, to use the, the term. Oh, God. Um, but it's, you really but it's, to ask that question. It is a currency of sorts <laughs> yeah. and the market you, is saying that these are what the shares are worth and they're going to give that much value in shares and, yeah, absolutely, it's, it's real money. I mean, they could have 
they could have gone to the market to raise capital by issuing uh, shares at about that price and raise yeah, exactly. real real Use money. Cash. So, yeah. Yeah. so it, 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 it is. Um, is it a merger, an acquisition? Well, they've. I mean, there's a very fuzzy line between those yeah. two. Yeah. Mergers tend to be when the two businesses are sort of comparable size. Acquisition when one tends to be much larger than the other. But, you know, yeah, it, it, it's absolutely, it is absolutely an acquisition. They absolutely paid for it. Not with direct cash, but they did pay for it with with shares, which there's an equivalence there. And the cost is extra shares uh, on issue for for yep. existing Square shareholders, or now Block, as it's as it's now known. Yeah, I I completely agree, mate. Um, but to your point about mergers and acquisitions, it depends if if there's politics involved, as in like just your feelings get hurt. The the Woodside purchase of BHP's fuel uh, energy assets were considered a merger. Uh, which is basically just to make sure both shareholders feel good about it. Oh, good, that's okay. Then Woodside aren't buying us, and you know BHP saying, "Well, it's every bit as good as without you know without us is with us." Like, well, why did you sell it then? Mm. I know it's a merger. It's a merger. Uh, yeah. It's not a merger. It's an acquisition. Yeah, <laughs> BHP's assets are going to be part of Woodside. That's how it works. Mm. Um, the same is here, Gary. Look, you're right in a sense, Gary, that um, and the value of it, by the way, is also measured in square shares. So if square shares are overvalued then the real value of the purchase might actually be less if Square's worth half of the current price. Then yeah, they they actually paid twenty billion dollars of kind of fair value and got away with it by issuing you know ex- more expensive shares, um, mm. which is actually what a company should do if its shares are overvalued. Yeah. By the way, yeah. um, you know if if you know if I if I if I have a, a um, if I got an envelope and the envelope's got hundred bucks in it, right? And someone's like, give you two hundred bucks for the envelope. I'm going to find as many of those envelopes as I can, stuff with hundred dollar bills, and sell them to people for two hundred bucks. Mm. Uh, now, yeah. not 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 um, lying to anyone, not not defrauding anybody. But if they say, look, here's here's what this is, and they think it's worth more than I think it's worth, I'm going to sell it to them. Uh, so, you know, it actually makes a lot of sense to use shares if you're square if the business is overvalued. And by the way, they haven't got the cash anyway if they wanted to buy Afterpay. So they had to use shares. Mm. Um, that's how this works. It's a, it's absolutely an acquisition. Um, you, I, I think the, the, the what I'm trying to get through, I guess, Gary, is whether this is a question of semantics, which it is to some degree, or whether there's a, a broader point or concern or question about it. Um, uh, the, the, the reality is to Ram's point, if they hadn't bought these this company, and they hadn't issued the shares, then the Square shareholders' futures or Block shareholders' futures would have been essentially just the current, the then current market cap and the then current business of Square and what that turned into in future. Mm-hmm. Now, there are more shareholders, the businesses are together and they hopefully, for everyone involved, will be worth more in future than they are now. And so it's worth issuing those shares as long as you get good value for it. But to Andrew's point, they could have issued $39 million worth of shares to Andrew, Andrew could have paid $39 billion for some more, you know, for some more square shares. Given the company the money, the company could have used that money to buy Afterpay. It would have been exactly the same outcome. Mm. Um, so it, it doesn't really matter all that much. And, it, you know, it's probably, that's it. It's worth thinking about whether Afterpay is really worth that much or square shares are worth that much. But that's kind of a different question as to whether it's really an acquisition or is it the money real? Is the, is the purchase real? It is, yeah, I think, I think that's fair to say. We were talking about this off air in regard to something else, but the, mm. the, the look, a company's got three options. It can use yeah. cash on its balance sheet in the bank. If it's got it, it can mm-hmm. issue shares or it can take on debt. And which right. is the right one actually depends on a whole bunch of different <laughs> it things. Depends. Yeah. You know, it, it, it depends. But if, if you've got a very strong balance sheet and strong cash flows and debt mm-hmm. is really cheap, You'd probably argue, and and maybe your maybe your shares aren't uh, fairly valued according to your reckoning. Maybe they're mm. they're worth more than what the market's paying. Debt is absolutely the right way to go. Yes, absolutely. Um, and what was that saying that you gave me, which was really great? Comes from a colleague of a former colleague of ours. Joe still works for the Motley Fool, but in a different business organisation. Um, uh, Joe Mager uh, said, "Words I don't imagine it's a Joe original, but it's a great one." Which is, "Debt is temporary, but equity is forever." Mm. 
Yeah. And the go. On. I, I was just going to say, I mean, we, we debt is is usually seen as as bad, um, but but it's it's sometimes the lesser of two evils, or not yes. not an evil at all. There's there's a lot of companies that have used it very judiciously, mm. been able to pay that debt down very quickly, and at the end of the day, as you say, it's temporary. Mm. But when you when you issue new shares, those new shares are just out there forever, and unless the company buys it back in the future, which doesn't tend to happen, certainly not to the extent to which money was raised. So um, yeah, you've got to weigh up all of those different options and sort of mm-hmm. sort of see which is the best bet. At a point in time where I look, I don't know Square or Block as it's now called um, intimately well, but they trade on pretty high multiples. Yes, which, very. Which, you know, so it's it's probably not a, a silly thing to issue yeah. shares. Uh, that by it's it's very cheap. You don't you don't take on any uh, debt. The balance sheet remains really strong. Um, so it's it's probably a, a sensible move in in what they've done. If the share price was half, then you might uh, and they had the the funding capacity, then maybe debt would have been the better way to go. But as it turns out, that's that's not the current situation. So yeah, um, yeah, lot, lots of layers to that. Ogres have layers. What's that? Ogres have layers. Onions have layers. Parfait has layers. It's a Shrek reference, Andrew. I'll move on. Okay. Um, <laughs> Straight over my head. You know what? You've watched Shrek. Come on. I, I have, but I, I don't know it that well. <laughs> so it's the uh, ogres have layers. Onions have layers. Parfait has layers. Anyway. All right, let's move on. Uh, we get a question from Travis and a really simple one. What's going on with Solpats? Is it Milton shareholders offloading? Is it the coal in their portfolio or is it something else? Now, for those who uh, have been playing along at home, uh, the Solpat share price is down meaningfully from from a reasonable recent high. Uh, I'm pulling up the numbers as we speak because that's the sort of research we do before the show. Um, the shares were thirty nine dollars eighty back at the end of September. Uh, by the end of November, they're under thirty one bucks. They've fallen by what's that twenty five percent or so, almost not quite. Mm-hmm. Um, and Travis is saying, "What's going on? Why are the shares falling?" Uh, I'll give this one up front, mate, but jump, uh, jump in afterwards. By the way, uh, don't believe everything you read on uh, Wikipedia. Uh, apparently, according to Wikipedia, uh, West Farmers is the, sole, is the parent company of Solpats, which is clearly not true. Oh, really? Don't, don't believe everything you, uh, you read. Um, yeah, weirdly enough. Anyway, it's... Um, it's uh, so here's the, here's the thing. I, I, I'm going to be, with my tongue firmly in cheek, Travis, say I didn't hear, I didn't hear from you when Solpats was going up from thirty to thirty nine dollars eighty. Now I said, "What's going on with Solpats? Why are, why, are the, why are the shares up? What's going on?" We all kind of go, "Oh, that's good. I'll take that." Mm. When they fall, we go, oh, "What's going on?" So the shares are still higher than they were six months ago. Uh, only about four percent, but you know, we'll take it. Um, over the last year, they're up nine percent. In fact, since uh, the end of January, uh, they're up nicely. So, you know, I, I, I have tongue firmly in cheek, Travis. I'm not having a go at you, mate. It's it's human nature, right, to take the take the gains when they come and not question them. And then when the shares fall, we go, what's going on? Mm. Uh, the answer is they've gone back to where they were. So over, over any length of time, what's going on? Nothing. Literally nothing is happening. <laughs> the market is doing what the market does. It's up 4% over six months and there's nothing to see here. Um, now, I, I say that flippantly. I am going to answer your question because it's, it's a valid question. It's a good one. Um, partly the answer is coal, yes. Uh, New Hope coal shares have fallen meaningfully from about $2.70 to about 2 bucks. Um, they own 60% of New Hope coal. So you'd expect that would contribute something to the loss. Uh, I am going to suggest to you, mate, and the time frame is, by the way, roughly the same. So um, that's, a, that's a large chunk of it. The other thing I would simply say is it's the market being the market. And sometimes we've got to be a little bit careful not to try to find relationships or answers where there are none. That's why tarot card readers and clairvoyants exist because our search for meaning when we can't find... I'll go. I'll say it for fun. 
arguably why religions may even exist, but uh, don't don't throw things at me. Mm-hmm. Um, we try we try and you know mythology for years has you know the Greek gods. I wonder why that's happening. It must be X, right? So we find meaning, and that's completely human. It's completely normal. I have nothing against it. It's it's a natural thing to try and do. Um, honestly, mate, I don't know is the answer, uh, but I would suggest that's probably just a case of the market doing what the market does. Any thoughts from you, a, mate? I, I just sort of say it's it's completely normal. Um, yeah. Let's let's stick with Soulpats. Between 2018 and 2020, they dropped from 28 all the way down to, to 16. Yes, yes. You know, uh, between the, 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 the 2014 and 2015, they dropped uh, 15 yeah. down to 13. So in percentage terms, you know, pretty pretty big fall. It just it happens, and it's I've, I've mentioned yeah. it a lot of times before. But even you can find the best performing company on the market over the last X. X years, mm-hmm. and you will find that there are always these big drawdowns. So it's always a case of the market sort of takes two steps forward, one step backwards. It's, it's just mm-hmm. how it goes. So it's, it's totally normal. It only and so it, it actually means you're not necessarily wrong. So you, I could pick one of those past former highs and bought it. It would have had a really mm-hmm. crappy year or two. Yeah, that's right. But but you're you're laughing at this point in yeah. time, you know. Yeah. And so that so the question is, were you wrong? Well, yes, absolutely, you were wrong if you were making a, a five month trade. Mm-hmm which is probably a good lesson to, to not be a short-term trader because this stuff happens <laughs> with, without any good, good reason all the time. But if you were buying this to pop in the bottom drawer for the next 10 years, well, mm. well, we will see. It depends. But arguably, you haven't made any mistake whatsoever. If it was good value at, at, you know, at, at the high, uh, it was good value at the high and that will be realised in time. So that's, yeah. that's always the question to, again, just to repeat myself, is that you know, have an, have an independent idea of value. Is the market yes. giving you something that's close to that? Then then buy it. If you're right, you will be you will be rewarded in time. Yes. Um, even it just doesn't happen immediately. It, it is human tendency to kind of wonder if something's going that you're not aware of is the other thing. So it's a reasonable question for, for Travis. Oh, yeah, hey, sure. is, is something going that I don't know about? You know, is there should I be should I be you know? Oh, actually, no. It turns out, mate, there was this horrible announcement X Y Z happened, and that's why the shares are down. Oh wow, I missed that. Okay, good. So mm. it's, it's not a problem to ask the question. The answer is frequently. Well, here's the thing: if you ask us. The frequent answer is frequently I don't know. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to go and uh, again cruel my employment chances almost anywhere other than the multi full by saying a lot of others will try and try and find an answer because you're supposed to have an answer, right? Yeah. One of the great gifts of working for yourself as Andrew does or work for the multi full as I do uh, is that no, neither of our businesses expect us to have a made up answer to explain stuff because we're supposed to sound smart. Mm. Um, what, what's the John Kenneth Galbraith quote, mate? Pundits forecast not because they know but because they're asked. Yes, um, yeah, love it. You know, when you're asked, for an, why is it happening? We could have said, oh, we'll see what's happening, Travis, is um, look, interest rates are up and, and, and the new hope, the coal price is down. And of course, uh, investor sentiment and, uh, and, and uh, you know, the moon is in Jupiter and, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the sun god's unhappy with us because we didn't sacrifice enough lambs at the idol altar. Um, you know, and again, I'm not, I'm not making fun of you at all, mate. I'm just saying some people will absolutely find a reason, say something to sound smart. Oh, and we're going to nod and goes, oh, they're smart. They know the answer to that question. Mm. Uh, the, the, the true answer is almost always, I don't know. The real time, answer. Mate, the not, real answer is that those people buying and selling shares over that period were only prepared to trade at a lower price. That's the answer. Now, why? Well, we don't. That's that's the harder one. Yes. But the, yes. that's specifically, technically, that's the right answer. Were they right? Were they wrong? Well, we'll see. Tom asks or says, "G'day, Scott and Ram. Thank you for all of your wisdom. That's me. I think you're talking about and allowing us fools to try and make a bit of money along the way. I appreciate your insights. My question is quite a basic one, as I'm relatively new to investing." This is one of those young people who uh, just throw their ages at to insult me. I am 26, he says, and just starting out with the end goal of building a good amount of wealth to try to be financially independent. Good man, Tom. You always mention the most important part of investing is doing your research, understanding balance sheets and things like that. What resources would you recommend 
And could you step us through the research you personally do on companies before you make a decision to purchase? I think there are a lot of younger people out there that would appreciate your insights to make us all more educated before we jump in to buying a stock without knowing what we are getting into. Once again, thank you for the, all the value you provide to your listeners every week. We appreciate it very much. Tom from Brisbane. Thanks, Tom. Really appreciate that, mate. It's very kind of you to say. Um, I'm going to say, mate, there's no single way I normally do it, but do you want to have a go at how you I might think it's a great question. Yeah, I, I, one thing I will say is you don't need any advanced software or mm-hmm. things like people Math tend to skills. think that I yep. need a you know supercomputer with ten screens and yep. a subscription to Bloomberg and or, you know, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, yeah. But ninety nine point nine nine percent of what you want is free on the internet, and yes. you just go to the ASX website and look at company announcements. Companies are legally obliged to disclose anything that is uh, that is material yeah. to their business. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, uh, that is uh, provided it's not commercial in confidence kind of stuff. Um, and and so you, you don't need anything special. And the other thing is I, I think you just do a lot of reading yeah. is, is what it is, whether it's specific to the company or just investing in business in general. You, you, you will get... By reading, you know, we've we've done episodes in the past of good books and stuff to read. There's some, I know there's mm. some good stuff on the Motley Fool website of recommended reading. I mean, you, you could take mm, 300 bucks, and get onto Amazon and just buy a bunch of books and yeah. just spend the next sort of three, six months reading through them. Yeah, right. And that will give you such a massive- uh, That's such a good call, right? And so many people yeah. won't do that, right? That's the other thing is people will go, I want to know how to do it. Oh, I spent six months reading books. No, no, yeah. no, but tell me how to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, yeah. no, no, read the books. And people people tend to, I do too, you tend to think that there's just, oh, there's a thing, I can look at these ratios or these chart patterns yes, and that's, yes, that's what yes. I need to do. Yeah, yeah. But what you what I, I've learned anyway is that the, the really important stuff's really fuzzy- it's really slippery. It's really qualitative as opposed to quantitative. It's the stuff that doesn't necessarily fit into a spreadsheet. You know, the competence uh, of of management, um, the structural dynamics mm-hmm. uh, of the industry, uh, the business model, uh, all of these kinds of things are the, are the things that I've found mm-hmm. that really matter. Mm-hmm. So to, what do I do? I really start off with some really, really high-level questions that are almost like childishly laughable, such as what does the business do? That sounds really dumb for, for a lot of businesses, you know, what does BHP does? It digs holes in the ground and takes stuff out of it, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but the, yeah. you, you read you read the company description for some and, you know, uh, we operate at the forefront of machine learning and <laughs> da, 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 da. Right. And you kind of think, okay, yeah. but, but, but yeah. what, what do you specifically, like I'm a four-year-old, <laughs> explain to me what, get rid of all the buzzwords. What do you do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, that's, that for me is the first question. And, and actually I'll happily admit that a lot mm. of the time I just – kind of go, I don't get it. Um, or even if I get it, I don't really feel as though I've got any particular edge in understanding the nature of the mm. of, of the industry and the business. And, and I'll just happily throw that in the two hard baskets. You really, what do you guys do? What, what, are, what are the economics associated with your business? How do the pieces all move um, with increasing scales? I mean, is, is it a business that has good operating leverage? Is it a business that's heavily capital dependent? So, you know, for, for every time we grow, we need to build a new factory or, you know, what are the margins like? Just everything that you would want to know is if I often like to pretend I'm just a trillionaire who's thinking of buying this business outright. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. so, so I don't, I don't know. Forget the share. The, the, the share market is the last thing you look yeah. at. I don't, I don't give a stuff what the share market says. I want to know what is this business? If this was offered to me through a private sale, mm. 
what w- what would be the kinds of things I'd want to want to look yeah. at? So I'd, I'd want to understand the business model, the nature the nature of um, uh, the dynamics. Who who's steering the ship? What are their what's their track record mm-hmm. like? What's their vision for the business? And you sort of it gives you a really good foundation to to sort of start from, and you just keep working through from there. And the end goal is really to try and find something that you feel has a lot of favourable, attractive characteristics that allow them to continue earning and growing their money very well in a very cut and thrust capitalist mm-hmm. kind of <laughs> economy that we, that, that we live in. What, what kind of competitive strengths do you have that's going to stop others from undercutting you and, and doing all of this kind of stuff? And I really just ultimately want to end with a view of, look, in in a nice a nice very simple way of thinking about it is to ask, in five years' time, is this business still around and is it earning more money then than it is now and by what quantum? Roughly, mm-hmm. very roughly speaking. Yeah. And that just gives you gives you a a, a, a a line in the sand to sort of work with there. And you're going, well, you know, I, I could I could probably Woolies is a good example. Do I understand the business? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. They they do groceries. That's that's pretty easy to understand. Um, what are they likely to grow at on average over time? Well, probably about GDP growth plus a little bit more. Very very mature business there. Uh, history would suggest that that's not an unreasonable kind of thing. So maybe add a little bit to that and sort of go 5%. So I can take my earnings per share and grow that at 5% for five years and say, well, for that kind of business, the market on average would tend to pay a multiple of this and, you know, multiply one by the other and you've got a target price. And you compare that to the current one and sort of say, well, if I buy it now and it gets to where it could feasibly get to in that time, does that does that translate to an attractive return? So it sort of sounds pretty simple, but but most of it is. I mean, you could do a 400 terabyte spreadsheet with 4,000 lines and columns and the rest of it and go right into the weeds. But you really, that's the question that you're trying to to answer. Mm. Um, And just keep doing it. It's it's like like anything. The more you do it, the better you get. You you get very good at um, uh, knowing what matters and what doesn't. And you can overlook overlook things very uh, quickly, know know that things aren't important. Other things you think, actually, this is something that is really fundamentally important that I need to dig into. And as I always say, you'll often get, often get to a point where you, you just don't know, and that's cool. That's cool. There's absolutely nothing wrong with if you don't have a, any kind or you can't build any conviction, that's cool. It just says you just don't invest in it. You might look back in the future and go, oh, I wish I had, would have, could have, should have. <laughs> Obviously, that's that's yeah. the case. But but that's hope is not an investment strategy, right? You need, you need to be able to have a, 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 a view and you need to have some kind of confidence on that. And when you get mm-hmm. those two things, that can help you work out what's a, a fair value. And then you, then at the very, very, very last point, once you've decided, I like this, I want to own this, I think anything around here, price X is fair, then you look at the share market and go, huh, turns out I can get it for much cheaper than, mm-hmm. than, than what I think it's worth, in which case buy. Uh, or it might be that I really like the business, really like to own it, I just, don't, I just think the market's gotten a bit carried away, in which case I chuck it on a watch list and I just wait. And almost, almost invariably you'll get a chance at some point in the future. I don't know, what, what do you think? Very thorough answer, mate. I am going to assume right now Tom's a bit overwhelmed uh, and, and people like Tom because there's a lot in what you just said, which is all perfectly valid and right, but there's a lot there. So, Tom, I'm going to bring it back a little bit. Take Andrew's everything Andrew just said and then add in a couple of things. First is you will make a lot of mistakes and just make your peace with that. The good thing is when you save a little bit of money, you want to make those mistakes now rather than when you're 56 and you've hopefully compounded for 30 years, you've got a lot of money. So make the mistakes early and know that you will, right? This is not, there is no, and there's no textbook. If this was easy and simple and straightforward and formulaic, 
then Andrew and I wouldn't have a job because one single computer would do it for the whole market and we'd all get the average market return forever, mm. right? Because there would be no, there would be no outperformance because <laughs> the market would always get it right. If there was, if, you know, we, Andrew sells something, I buy something, same company or vice versa. We have different views on it. Even though we're smart, capable people, hopefully, theory, um, <laughs> theory. We, we, we're not even that dissimilar as investors, but we might simply say, you know what? We talked about Kogan a couple of weeks ago. Um, Andrew Andrew thinks that Kogan might get sucking attractive now. I think it was attractive for double the price. So that's a that's a simple example of two people, again, in theory, sensible, stable, normal people with reasonably similar information, just taking a different view. So there's that. Mm. Um, second thing is, Andrew said, read a lot. That's I can't I can't emphasize that enough. Read a lot. Uh, grab the essays of Warren Buffett and read those. Um, they are in a book. They're itemized by topic. Makes it super easy to read. Read through them. Understand business. Understand what he's talking about. Understand how to think about companies. Um, the other thing I'd probably say is the longer I've done this, Andrew, the more the less data I've actually used, the less information I've used, the less complicated my review of businesses. And that's a that's a that's a benefit that you can only earn by doing, um, because you have to know which is what is relevant and where it's not relevant. So your point about digging, you know, BHP digging holes in the ground, that's true. I'd also overlay that with a, with an understanding of commodity cycles and mm. the the reality of of what makes a good or bad miner, which. We can talk about it. We probably will from time to time, um, as well as other industries, of course. Uh, but part of it is heuristic, which you just say, I've been around this block before. I've watched these businesses. I know what they do. I know what makes them successful or not. And so I've made this decision. And I can't teach you that, Ben. Uh, sorry, Tom, because it's it's just, it, it's just, you know, it's, it's experience. It's, it's whatever, right? So we'll try and help you as we go through the podcast and other places to think about some of that stuff. Um, but there is no, there is no simple, simple answer. Even balance sheets, Matt. I, I've said before, lots of times, I had something like forty or fifty ratios I used to calculate. These days, on a balance sheet, I'm just looking for, hey, is there enough cash? Is there a decent amount of debt? How much is each? Um, does it look like a business that's actually growing in value over time, or is it a business that has been declining in value over time in terms of that cash and, and liabilities? But again, as Andrew said, you know, in, in a previous answer, debt isn't necessarily bad. Um, you know, uh, and and equity is necessarily good. It, it all really depends. And that sucks. Like, I get why this sucks. Here's my thing. I would say to you, firstly, find the best quality businesses you can find. Do that first, right, as, a, as an early investor. Andrew and I don't spend as much time on that, those companies as we used to, each, I'm pretty sure, mm. in the sense that quality as it's traditionally defined is the big behemoths, the Woolworths of the world, the Commonwealth Banks of the world that are just really, really juggernaut businesses. Um, but I understand why they are. What is it about Woolies that makes it great? What is it about CBA that makes it great? As a business, not necessarily as investments, but as businesses. Um, Buffett would say it's better to buy a, a wonderful business at a fair price than a fair business at a wonderful price and do it in that order, right? So look at quality. Just, just spend your time doing that. And for the next five years, just try and find the best businesses you can find and own some of them yep. and learn from that and read and read and read. And it's it, investing knowledge is one of the great things for, for Andrew and I who've been doing it for a while is the longer we do this, the better we should get at it because it's an accretive process. Um, if, you're, if you're a sports person, your skills start to decline at some point. Andrew and I, by the time we're 95, probably our mental acuity will start to decline somewhat. But in the meantime, it's an accretive process. We, the more you do it, the more you learn. So that's probably, take, take Andrew's uh, approach to the valuation piece, absolutely, and the approach to finding great businesses. But just start with reading a lot, uh, Buffett's book, read good to great, read a whole lot of stuff we've talked about before, um, and focus on what makes, find the best businesses you can. And, and businesses that are growing, right? Why is... What, what's it? What's an easy business growing? We both agree on, mate. It's probably hard to hard to ask that question because fishing different ponds these days. But if you uh, find a find a good quality growing business and go, you know what? That's I will put it out there. Yeah. I'll say I'll go say on. CSL will be around in ten years time and it'll be earning more go. then than it is now. 
you've got to work out that. what's fair price. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. That I'm pretty confident of that. I, I, very hard to believe that that business is going bankrupt or out of business anytime soon. I throw, I throw a cochlear on top of that and say, you know, this is a people get a hearing implant, they have them for 70 years, they, you know, replace the sound processes. This is a growing business with a growing market. Um, and not just these, plenty, heaps and heaps of others. Even I said, like, honestly, look at Woolies. Look at um, West Farmers is actually great. Grab the, grab the West Farmers release and look at Officeworks and Bunnings and compare that with Kmart and Target because that, that in a single presentation, you know, Kmart and Target are sucky businesses. Officeworks and Bunnings are great. Um, have a think about that. What makes Bunnings great? You know, and, and learn about businesses. Probably enough on that. Um, I wish we, I was a single answer. I, I can't find you one. Yeah, it's such a good question, though. And, it's, it and we could spend a whole podcast. A couple, couple uh-huh. of quick quick thoughts on that. So you said before, you know, you'll make a lot of mistakes as you start out. I, yep. I just want to add to that. You'll make a lot of mistakes no matter how experienced you are. So, you <laughs> know, Buffett, may, Buffett has made plenty of mistakes recently. And I, I look at my portfolio today. I've got all the stocks that I've got in my portfolio there because mm-hmm. I, I feel mm-hmm. as though I, I like them and they've got a bright future. But at the same time, I can guarantee you that when we look back in five years' time, <laughs> At least a few of them will turn out to be dogs. I, I, yeah. I, you know, I don't know which ones. Obviously, I'd sell them if I knew now. But it's going to be the case. It, it is absolutely yeah. guaranteed to be the case. So I can't. Yeah. You know, making forecasts <laughs> are very difficult, especially about the future, Football. as the old Yogi Berra saying is. Um, so that, that's that's a point. You sort of said like focus on uh, the good businesses. Uh-huh. You, the, the, the very very important saying in our industry is that the past is no guarantee of the future. That is yeah. very true. Yep. But businesses that, if you look at the history, we, I'll, I'll stick with West Farmers because you mentioned mm-hmm. it. Here's a business that has steadily, uh, slowly, but sh- well, not even that slowly, reasonably and surely grown its earnings year after year after year after year. It has very high returns on equity. It's been a very good dividend pay. Now, that doesn't guarantee anything, but it shows you that there's something there's something within this enterprise that has allowed it to do that. And that's a great yes, place yes, to yes, start. Yes. If you look at a business, yep. let's pick on AMP again for fun who's just consistently mm-hmm. destroyed shareholder capital. Does that mean the future is going to be terrible? No, it doesn't, but it shows yeah. you that this business yeah. has, has it's it, it's going to be, it certainly hasn't demonstrated itself to have any quality um, mm-hmm. whatsoever. So I think that's good. And the final thing I would say is, I know a lot of investors are, are, are fond of this and I, I don't do it strictly speaking, but I like the idea of it is, is what they call checklist investing. So you just have a you have a list of things that you look at before you buy a company. So as I said before, what do they do? Maybe you have another item in there, as you said, check the balance sheet, how much debt, how much cash, all of this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and as you as you get more experienced, you'll just add more things to your checklist, which is he just as a pilot sits into the cockpit and then goes, right, uh, and he goes through it or she goes through it. Oh, I've got to check this, I've got to check that. Da, 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 da. And it just it, it adds it adds some discipline to the process and just makes sure that you check all of those things off. By the way, no matter what business, the best business in the world will still have a few negatives in there. There's, there's yeah. no such thing as a yeah. perfect business. But you'll end up having going through that process. You'll find that, you know, on, on the draw a line down the middle of a piece of paper, there'll be a bunch of stuff on the pro side and there'll be a bunch of stuff on the console and you've got to sort of weigh all of that kind of stuff up. But at least you've forced yourself to look at the things that you've you've recognised through experience and reading that are important to know or have a view on or just to be aware of. Mm. Um, the ones that really go to zero, generally speaking, the ones that do it quickly, generally speaking, because of balance sheet issues, too much debt, they just blow up, um, yeah. particularly when the cycle turns. So that's, that's, that's something important to look at and... <laughs> Yeah, the list goes on, but that's, I think we've covered it. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Hey, one from Harrison, I like this one. Uh, this is, let's not try and get stuck too much in the arcane detail, but I love the question. Hey, Scott. 
Loving all the wisdom you and Ram are sharing on the podcast. Thanks, Harrison. Would love to ask another question to ensure that the knowledge keeps flowing over the Christmas period with some crying eyes. I think he's happy and laughing and I'm not sure whether that means he's going to be drunk half the time or not. But Harrison, I'm going to assume you're legitimately asking. I was wondering if you could explain the difference between capitalising and expensing items ah. such as research and development and the pros and cons of each. As an example, I came across an article stating that objective corporation expenses all of its R&D costs. The article portrayed that this is a positive but I'm not sure if it's a good thing or not as I don't have much of a finance background and thus don't understand the terms. Thanks for your insights. I hope you both have and both sorry, I hope you both and your families have a happy and safe Christmas and New Year. Thanks Harrison, really appreciate that, mate. Um but you're a you're a software investor. You like capitalising and expensing. I don't like. like I, no, I don't like capitalising and expensing. Well, let's let's define it. So, capital the money is spent, right? If you're yes. you're spending a bunch of the cash, cash is spent. Yes, the cash has been spent. Let's start to, with a million dollars spent on a brand new computer system. Yeah, right. We're designing some software, right? And we've yep. spent a million dollars. Now you've got to account for that in your financial statements. You can put it on the income statement, statement of comprehensive income, as an Dude. expense profit for, and loss. Profit and loss. Yeah. Um, or you can add it to the balance sheet. Now, mm. both have – people will argue the toss, but but both have their merits and both have their How can you do reasons. both? How is it possible that one lot of cash spent on creating a new piece of software, how can you choose where it goes? How can it be either an expense or an asset? What's, what's that about? Well, you might – you so what – you would argue would, would be that that million dollars has actually, we've now built something with that. That's an asset mm-hmm. that should mm-hmm. go onto the balance sheet. Now that, that cost will be realized over time as we amortize, which is the, just what you do. It's a depreciation for intangible mm-hmm. assets. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's how we recognize it. And that's probably a pretty sensible thing to do. It's, it's not, a, it's not an expense for that year that reflects the true profitability of the business. Just like so if you I spend, buy. You spend the million dollars today but you're going to use that every year for the next 10 years and then you're going to replace it in year 11 with something new. It's better to- better. And you're going to earn money over that 10-year period using that piece of software. And so the accounting principle, of, they're called the matching principle, says you line up your expenses and your revenues at the same time. So yes, I spent all this cash to buy an asset. So, you know, software's hard. If I bought a car today, I spent the cash, I got a car. I'm going to drive that car for the next 10 years. It's going to give me value in being an Uber driver, let's say, for the next 10 years. And so I'm going to – that there's, there's going to be the expense of that asset over that 10 years to match the revenue I'm earning. Is that yep. fair? Yep, yep. That's a great – I mean, that's probably better than software is, is that if you're a trucking company and yeah. you just, you've bought a bunch of yeah, trucks yeah, to nice. do your business, right? Now, yep. All of this money goes out the door on day one. That doesn't really reflect the profitability of the business because yes. on one hand, you're, you're, you're probably not going to make a profit in that year because there's huge expenses there. Right. But then equally – in years two, three, four, and five, your profit is going to be massively overstated because you don't have that expense mm. there. You've just you've got this thing. Mm. Um, I would say, I would, and I said at the start, I don't like it for software companies because for a lot of these companies, that this is what you do. You will never. Mm. And I look, having built some some <laughs> software, <laughs> you, you, I naively thought, oh, you'll build this and then I'm away. And it's like, well, the reality is that development never stops. Yep. You know, zero will always spend a very big chunk of change each year mm. on maintaining mm. and advancing and further developing and adding new features. So I, I tend to think, for, I think Objective Corp is right. I think they do it mm. the more, it is the more conservative way of doing it. Expensing um, it. Expensing it rather, yeah. Because, you're, because what you're effectively doing is you're reducing your reported profit this year, yep. which is why it's conservative, because you're saying, well, I earned this money, but I spent all this cash. I'm going to expense it in the current year. And it, rather than putting it over 10 years and putting a tenth of it in each P&L, yep. you're putting the whole lot this year, which makes means you make less money this year, reported profits, 
which is more conservative, right? Because it's understating or, or maybe just saying the most conservative statement of profitability, putting in the most expenses you can, which makes it conservative, rather mm-hmm. than the more aggressive, putting it on the balance sheet, worrying about the amortisation in the future. Yeah, yeah. Can I just say, yes. Objective Corp, no one knows about, um, uh, but it's such a brilliant business. It's it, 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 Okay, let's not get sidetracked just now. Well, it, it's got it's got it's worth mentioning because they are um, Tony Wallace who runs it is just a master mm. of capital allocation. Mm. They have they have they have been very very judicious <laughs> with with their capital in terms of what mm. they've done with buying back shares in terms nice. of how they've uh, account for things. Very very conservatively nice. run the money that they they pay out a dividend, but the money that they keep they. Um, they just get incredible return. In fact, their return on equity is consistently above thirty percent. Awesome. So th- th- this is these these guys. Are, it's a masterclass in capital allocation. So if you mm. want to sort of dig into how it should be done, uh, yep, they, these these guys are worth looking there you at. Go. I'm going to disagree with you. Not about Objective Corp, but about the capitalising or expensive of, of R and D, mate. Oh yeah. And I'm not going to not going to disagree with you that in in, in right regards to software or just yes. in general. Yes. Yeah. You know, well, both. Uh, in regard to software in particular, not to say you're always wrong, but to say I don't think you're always right, and I think you would, yeah, you would, you're never saying, sure. you never make up. You're always right. Or you're always, you always have this view. Here's my thing. I, I think it depends on the software that's being amortized or capitalized. Sorry, in this case, and and why or where it's being used. Mm. Right. Mm. If it literally, if I'm going to spend the same amount every year to to do ongoing R and D. And effectively, that just it, it, it becomes an operating expense because I'm just literally, it's what I do. Just do it every I year. I about expensing. I think you're absolutely right. Yep. My, my concern is, so, and the reason it's, you said it's more conservative, right? Because it puts all the costs in this year and you wear it. Let's assume that you have a certain, this is an extreme example, which never happens in real life. But let's assume that million dollars was spent this year and you're not going to spend another dollar on a computer system until another round of R&D. When this is too old, you're going to spend another dollar in 10 years' time to, to revamp the system, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If you think about cash, that's a million dollars out today, nothing out for nine years, mm. and a million dollars out in 10 years' time. Mm. Oh, that's what it'll look like on the on the cash flow statement. On the P&L, it'll be the same. You make no money this year because you'd lose your million dollars. The next nine years, you would be obscenely profitable in a, a reported profits. I'm looking at price earnings ratio or the net profit of a company. Like, this company makes a squillion dollars. Man, how much how profitable is this thing? Look at the margins. There are no cost. Like, well, this is amazing. You get to year 10, and it makes no money again. It's like, but what happened to all that profit? I oh, know we just expensed the next round of, of, of computer uh, software, or the next mm. round of R&D. Mm. Now, again, I, I know it's an extreme example on the other end. I'm not saying anyone's like that. But my concern is that very matching principle of if I want to send the, the ongoing profitability of a business, if the expensing is genuinely, it's the same amount every year, it actually doesn't matter because the amortization eventually catches up to the, to the yes. expensing anyway because you're spending exactly the same amount. But yep. if you've got a lumpy business and I'm looking over its history, unless I really understand year by year where that R&D's gone up and down and why and what the future might look like. And I can do that work myself. I'm not entirely sure I wouldn't prefer a business to say, hey, this is this is the, the, the smoothed out version of an average year's R&D showing in my P&L in a given year rather than that lumpiness of we expense large amounts and nothing, then large amounts and nothing or vice versa. Um, and, and it makes the makes the financials look less accessible, less readable, less instructive mm. as to the actual underlying profitability of a business. No, that's-, so that's I, a, I think that's probably, you know, I don't, don't think you're wrong. I'm, I'm being it's a, a little bit point. pedantic, but- It's a fair point. A big part of it is with management communicating openly and transparently yeah, as, as to why yes, they're doing yes. it. And there's a lot of wriggle room in there yes, for there CFOs to do things <laughs> where you kind of think, is that is and that legitimately, one- by the way, there's no, like they're not doing anything illegal or even unethical. They, the accounting says give them this choice. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so here's another bugbear of mine is that every now and again, every now and again, it happens all the time, in fact. <laughs> yeah, Companies will do a write-down. Yeah. And what they'll do is they'll say the auditors have had a look at our, our balance sheet mm-hmm. and we've we've been carrying, let's call it, this, <laughs> this bit of software on our books at a million dollars. It turns mm-hmm. out things haven't gone that well and actually mm-hmm. that software isn't worth a million dollars. So we have to write that down. Right. Yes, yes, yes. Exactly. And, and management will always be quick to point out, oh, it's a non-cash <laughs> expense. <laughs> it's an accounting right. adjustment. Yeah, it's, right. it's, it's, right. it's, 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 no, it's, it's absolutely a cash expense. I mean, yes. cash hasn't gone out the door when you've written that down, but what yes. it's saying is that the, the amount that you've capitalised was overstated. That money has still been wasted. Yes. And, and so whenever you hear people sort of saying, oh, don't worry about it, it's a non-cash expense, it makes it feel as like, oh, it's not a real cost. Yeah. It's absolutely yeah. a real cost. It's just a cost that's finally being caught up and recognised. You overspent uh, you 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 capitalized too much, <laughs> or you 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 invested. Uh, you put X dollars in, and it's just absolutely not not worth that amount. Um, by the way, sometimes you get. In fact, also you see a bit of this where companies carry items on their balance sheet which aren't reflective of the true value yeah. uh, of of what they what what those assets uh, are worth. I think Event uh, is a good example of this as well. They've got a bunch yes. of property on yes, their books yes, that they yes. carry at cost. Yep. But it's actually, if you went to the market and sold them, actually it'd be worth a hell of a lot more. Mm, mm. Lots of devil in the detail there. So you've got to scrutinise, you've got to scrutinise these these aspects of, of A, accounting policy and B, how they're being treated there. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of work. It, it actually is, but it, it can be very illuminating. It's funny too, mate, you make that, and this is a slight tangent, but talk about amortization and depreciation and stuff like that and financial adjustments. If I'd bought Coca-Cola and Philips Cola at the same time 40 years ago and I had to recognize, and Philips Cola went out of business today, Coca-Cola would be on the books at exactly the same price I paid for it 40 years ago despite being phenomenally more expensive or more Mm -hmm. valuable, I should say, Mm -hmm. yet Philips Cola would be written down to zero. Yeah. And so you can't ever write up that sort of thing. You can only ever write it down. Mm. And so, you know, the financial statements, your point about property and other things, you don't always reflect, you know, it's, and that's fine to be conservative. It should be conservative, right? Except mm. it, there's often an opportunity for undervaluation there because as you say, if I could buy a business that had a whole lot of, um, you know, assets on the books that were last valued in 1900, and I could buy them in, in 2021 at, you know, at, 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 and it was it was valued on the basis of the book value of those assets. You get a very very different story than if you valued on the market value of the assets. And again, Coca Cola business is worth a lot more than it was forty years ago. But on the books of an acquired, if I, if I bought it forty years ago, I don't even be showing the amount I paid way back then. Speaking of sell hats before Brickworks is a, which they've got a huge cross shareholding in. Yes. Um, I own both those two, by the way. I'll throw it quickly. Where you uh, yeah. Well, Brickworks, you know, the world's most boring company. They make bricks, <laughs> right? But also <laughs> incredible and wealth. tiles. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, it's just like I'm, I'm not having yep. a go because boring can be yep. beautiful. And they, they've, yeah, exactly. they've generated huge amounts of wealth. But I did notice mm. when I looked at them not too long ago that they're the – the the net tangible asset value of that business based mm-hmm. not on the balance sheet but based yes. on independent yes. valuations of their assets actually around twenty nine bucks a share and it's, mm-hmm. it's trading at twenty two bucks a share please don't rush out and buy a bunch of shares on that basis because even mm-hmm. though that might be the case maybe they're never going to sell or realize that gain yeah, and it right. just you know there's there's no reason as to why the market should match that but I think it should should give shareholders a lot of solace knowing that the this business is underpinned by some very real very valuable mm-hmm. assets that that are that are that um yeah, just just underpin the operations of the business. So, um, a good real world example, mate. I'm going to try something. We're going to try and get through three sub questions in 15 minutes. Can you do it? I can try. 
So is it about Question. crypto? Because that's never going to happen if it's... No, I think oh, for all of us. I don't think how I'm just reading through. Oh, no, I avoided it. Good. Here we go. Hi, Scott and Rant Page. Love the podcast. A few questions for the mailbag pre-recording season. Here we go. First question. Dollar cost averaging seems a really smart strategy. So does Buffett's occasional accumulation of cash, currently more than $100 billion, waiting for the fat pitch. Problem is, they are contradictory approaches. Are they both okay ways to approach investing? What do you reckon? I love that question. Um, <laughs> dollar cost averaging is one of the, the most easiest things to yeah. understand, explain, and will, will almost certainly deliver value to you. It, yeah. It's one of those things that, in fact, it, it, it's unavoidable. If you're if you're still working and earning money, you and you know you just today you don't have all the money that you will ever have to invest. So you'll just sort of, <laughs> yeah. you will dollar cost average as you save and invest. But I mean, sometimes you're buying when the market's high. Sometimes you're buying yeah. when it's low. And the, yeah. the point is, you just you're just building, 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 and it, it tends to be a wonderful thing. It's also perfectly sensible at a higher level to have a little bit of extra dry powder on the side for when an opportunity comes, or if you feel as though there's just you know things are very overvalued. But the downside of that is, is that by the time the opportunity comes, the market as we said before, maybe the market goes up. You think, oh, things are a little bit expensive. It doubles mm. and then it falls mm. back twenty percent. So you still end up paying at a higher price when that opportunity comes. So it does. It does very much bring in a timing element to it, and timing is fraught with 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 danger. Right, right, right. Um, having said that, I, I've I've got cash on the side now, and it's not so much because of any particular macro view. It's just because I don't find any <laughs> highly compelling opportunities at this yeah. point. So I don't want to. I don't yeah. want to pull the trigger. Cash burns a hole in everyone's pocket. Yes, it does. When you've got, in, in, same with company managers. In fact, when they raise capital, you know, there's a bunch mm-hmm. of cash there. Oh, let's spend it. Let's spend it. Um, absolutely do it and and um, if there's a good reason to. But if you don't have any compelling reason to, sometimes mm-hmm. it could drag your returns lower. It's absolutely dragged my returns lower uh, in a lot of ways, but it, I do like having that optionality there. Um, so it's it's kind of talking out both sides of my mouth there. What do you reckon? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you like that optionality because I don't. Um, I, I don't like the idea of the market slowly drawing away from me the longer I hold cash because as Buffett has found... Uh, Scott, you, you will know this. Um, he's had hundred billion dollars of the cash for years, years and years and years, while the market's gone higher. And so Buffett has actually lost a lot of opportunity on that. Now, I'm not Warren Buffett, neither are you. For all I know, he's going to find some spectacularly great opportunity to buy some wonderful asset at a really cheap price and make me look like a deal. And I look forward to that because I'm a Berkshire Hathaway shareholder. But um, I think it's the maths is the market grows over time. So the longer you wait to deploy that cash, the higher the return you've got to find to justify the weight. So if it takes you, say 10% a year, if it takes you two years, you've got to not only get, you've got to find a 20% return just to get back to square with the market. And then you've got to hope to match the market and then hopefully beat it from there. So if you hold it for two years, you'd want, you know, 50% return-ish to, to justify that, you know, the weighting of that couple of years, right? Because you need that 20% plus the market return thereafter, plus you want to beat it by something. Um, and so the longer you wait, the longer you have to wait because the fat pitch doesn't turn up, the harder it is. Mm. And I just think that I'm not Buffett, you're not Buffett, and I would rather have the money invested. So I, there have been times where I had more cash than I would want to have, and I've you know been okay with that but not loving it. Um, I just think generally speaking, if the market's going to grow at 10% a year, betting against that, hoping that eventually you can find an opportunity. Uh, there have been times when we've worked for the service of the Motley Fool, we've said, oh, it'd be nice to be able to give this month a miss because these shares look expensive. And if I look back now, I'm like, Man, if I hadn't recommended something then, I'd be, you know, would I have caught up? Would I have eventually found the thing I want to put even more money into? Maybe, maybe not. Um, so it's, it's a, for me, it's a um, defense against 
personal arrogance. I don't mean that against people who keep the cash. I'm just like, you know what? Mm. I might think I have an opportunity. Maybe I do. Instead, I've got some money to invest. I'm going to say, what's my best idea right now? I'm going to buy that. Mm. Uh, and that's just that's how I choose to to go. So I, as it, I, I might I might I might go a couple of months, maybe up to six months. Sometimes out of a combination of not seeing anything great, being lazy, not getting around to it. Uh, but generally speaking, if you asked me, I'd rather have the money invested than not. Let's go to the next question, mate. It's, just oh, a, it's very different with an index investing. If you're index investing, I think then you just <laughs> yes, do it. Totally. But, but if, if yeah. you're sort of looking yeah. out there, and I, I, I do think forcing an investment just because is also, you know, if you just think like, everything is stupidly expensive, but I should yeah. buy anyway, I just, uh, maybe, you know, maybe. Maybe. Buffett does it because he talks a lot about, he talks about a lot about just, being knowing that when the tide goes out, that you know he's not naked, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's right. That's right. And I will say, at Share Advisor, the service I run, we've done, we've invested every month as a as the way we do it for literally over ten years now, um, and we've managed to beat the market doing that. So I think sometimes being forced to buy is not the world's worst thing. You you, you force yourself to buy when things are cheap and you're scared. Mm. Uh, you buy when things are more expensive, and maybe they end up being overvalued, or maybe they actually go on to you know do, do slightly less well in other times, but probably okay over time. Um, yeah, it's 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 been it's been good for us. It's been good for the market overall. Hmm. Hey, question two: You've often mentioned the market returns over the long term. Speaking of which, about eight percent a year. Oh, sorry, eight to ten percent a year. Says Scott. This seems an incredibly complex thing to calculate. Stocks of companies that go bankrupt are removed from the index, generating survivorship bias and complicating the calculation. Stock splits and other company specific events also complicate the calculation. And these are just two examples. Can you please explain how did you arrive at the eight to ten percent number? Where did it come from? So it's it's perfectly legitimate. Um, it just comes from the index. What, what yeah, has the well, index we, we done? We didn't do it. <laughs> that's yeah. right. It's just yeah, the people the who make do it the, themselves. Now yeah. he's absolutely right. Like things yeah. get drop out of that, and new things get added. But if you're investing yeah. in an index, well, that that happens anyway. Um, right. and so you, you get the you, better for that as you, it goes. You don't you don't you don't buy the old index. Your index constituents um, change right as time goes on. Yeah, so you so you absolutely get the benefit of that. Things like share splits, splits and consolidations are actually factored in to it as well. So that that, yep. that is that is accounted for yes. um, on prop. And when you're doing it properly and you're including dividends, so you're looking at the total return. Dividends are included a, a, mm. as well. So it's, it's just what it's just what the number is. And and if we look forward over the next thirty years, there'll be a bunch of blue chip high-ranking stocks in the index that probably won't exist in, in 20 years' time. Mm-hmm. but they w- And they will be replaced. And that's perfectly fine because that, that will be reflected in well, at, in the index and, and anyone following that index will, will have done the same thing by definition. So it's, it is what it is. And, and even within an individual portfolio level, you'll find that some don't go too well. Even if you, know, you either sell them or they just go down to zero on their own accord and then you take <laughs> fresh capital and you put it in. So it's... Yep. It's a good benchmark to have. Um, you can argue, you can get into the weeds and sort of, oh, yes, but could have I and should have I and maybe this wouldn't have or could it have happened. But mm. I, I think it's a very, very useful benchmark. If you're out there picking stocks, it's like I probably want to be able to get around that figure and hopefully a little bit more because mm. I can probably do that just by buying an index and, and consistently investing into that over the years. Uh, I yep. think it's I think it's legit. Yep, it's absolutely legit. It is the... Uh, th- think about rather think about the index value. Think about the money that was invested in the market. Mm. If you'd have bought hundred bucks worth of all those companies, or you buy them in market cap size, but you know for the for the sake of the exercise, you bought them all. Your investment in that company went broke. You uh, bought some of the new company when it was added to the index. You sold some of the other, co- the other company that was removed from the index. You redeployed that money in the rest of the companies that were left. If you think about the money flow that would be required if you were going to do it manually, 
that's exactly the return you would get. Yeah. Um, it's, it's that ten percent. It just it is it just is what it is. What it is. Um, there's also companies that added to the index as well as taken out. There are the survivors. Yes, the survivors are biased, but you're not. We're not saying that only the companies that do well are worth investing in. We're saying even with the losers, the market did that, and that's the important thing, right? We're not saying the winning companies did eight percent, ten percent a year. We're saying including the stuff that sucked, mm. <laughs> that not only dropped out of the index but fell by ninety percent. Um, HOH Insurance got destroyed. Essentia dropped 90% and that dragged the index back by a little bit in, in doing so. Um, those things are part of the return, not not excluded from it. Can I just, just a quick data point here? Yes. I'm, I'm going to get the, num- the exact number wrong, but when you look at the the drivers of the market or of the mm. index, it's usually the top 5% of companies that do it. So that it's sort of like all of the value was created at the very <laughs> yeah, top end. Yeah. So you have all yeah. this mediocrity, all this losers in the market, yeah. Yeah. and then you have these just outstanding companies and they're in the, a small minority, but they drive all of the returns. And that's yeah. the big argument really for index investing because you mm-hmm. just don't know which over the next 10 years, which are going to be the ones that just go and shoot out the lights. You don't know, but by having the index, you guarantee that you've, you've, you've probably got some exposure to them. And things can only go to right, zero. If you can find them, you'll do even better. <laughs> yeah, well, things, things can only go to zero, but the things right. that go really well can go up more than 100%. Yep. So the maths is actually yep. very favourable for you in that regard. Yeah. Yep. I will say too, uh, Scott, I deliberately, what I ever mentioned, always say 8 to 10% is a massive range, right? And I say that deliberately is a really big range because – um, it depends on the index. It depends on the time period. It depends on the country. It depends on you know. Th- there are a lot of a lot of moving parts there. And I don't do it to be um, to be vague. I do it specifically to say you know if I'd started in 1911 rather than 1909, maybe it's 8.32 rather than 8.59. Or if I'd taken the US market but started in 1930 BX or you know whatever it is. Mm. Um, so you know the, we, I, I deliberately make it vague. Here's the thing. I think you're right to ask the question. Just don't forget that if it's eight or if it's ten <laughs> or if it's seven and a half or if it's eleven. The compound value of that is still stupendously huge. Yeah. So yes, you should absolutely hold people like us to account if we say something. You're absolutely right to say, guys. Oh, just you know, I'd like to kind of fact check that. Go for it. Um, do that for sure. But on the other hand, the our broader point is whether it's eight or ten or seven and a half or eleven and a half. If you compound that for a very very long time, that's the opportunity. That's where the win comes from. One one quick thing before we move on to the last one, which is this. Uh, when we when you say, well, it's not just we. When anyone sort of says this long term return. People instinctively think that that's, you know, I put money in this year and then I'll be 10% richer a year after or 10% richer. Yeah, that's also it, true. It, so when you actually, yeah. if, you, if you take yeah. the ASX over whatever period and you plot out just on a bar chart what it earned in any financial year, so one year it'll be up 30%, then it'll be down yeah. 15%, then it'll be up 3%, then it'll be down 8%. It, it actually very, very rarely achieves <laughs> that average on any individual year. But it's just, it's yeah. just that's yeah. what the average is. Um, so yeah, bear, bear that in mind that even though that's it's it's very reasonable to expect that over the long mm-hmm. term, in any given year you're very unlikely to get that. You, you'll probably get much much better or much much worse. But but it, but the point is it'll average out hopefully to something like that. Nice. This is a very easy question, mate, from Scott. This is the third one in three. Um, is there an easy way to tell which security issuers, in other words, companies or listed entities, generate end of year tax statements? i.e. ones that you use to help you fill out your tax return. I know companies that represent normal shares, i.e. BHP or NAB, etc., don't generate these tax statements. You just use the dividend statements. But companies offering these other more complex securities, e.g. REITs, real estate investment trusts, ETFs, etc., do generate these tax statements. Is there an easy way to tell? I'm always afraid to start my tax return until I am certain they have all arrived. Thanks so much for your great work. Keep up the rants. Who doesn't love a good rant? Says Scott. <laughs> Cheers, and that's from Scott. 
Yeah. So, well, they, they will provide everything that they legally need to provide to yeah. enable you to calculate your, your, your tax. Yeah. So every company will do it. Um, but they're not going to calculate your your. They, they can't give you anything in terms of the capital gain side of things. That's that has to come from your broker because the company NAB doesn't know what you bought shares in NAB at, yes, or, or whether you sold any throughout the year. But they do know if you got a dividend, and they do know how many franking credits they gave you, and they'll give you a statement, and then you can give that to your accountant or you can provide it yourself directly to the ATO. And it's a bloody nightmare. Um, I hate it. It's, it's my least favorite time of the year. I hate it with a passion. Yeah. Um, but but every company will provide exactly what what you need. So there's you don't have to tell which ones. They they are all they all absolutely do. Mm-hmm. Um, quick plug here for ShareSite. I I use it. Um, we have an affiliation. You go to the Strawman slash blog. There's a there's a discount offer. So yes, we'll benefit from it. But it just it does it all for you. Press a button at the end of the year. Just mm-hmm. works out all of your capital gains, all your income. You just plug that into the ATO. We'll give it to your accountant. Just makes it super easy. Um, yeah. What do you think? Sounds pretty hard to beat. Uh, yes, it, exactly the same thing. Um, in fact, if you look at some of the company announcements on the ASX, you'll actually find those businesses that list those often. I just looked up SCP, which is um, Shopping Centers Australasia, and they actually have an announcement that was sent out in January. SCP taxation components first half FY twenty one. And so yep. on and so forth. Um, yep. They will send them through. I, I get what I get. What Scott's asking, mate, because the uh, those statements do kind of dribble out over months after the end of end of the year. And so, mm. if you own an, uh, a, a REIT, um, my my mother in law's in that situation for some of hers. Uh, you kind of they dribble out over over months. I think the last one she got might have been in October. Mm. So if you kind of want to start your tax return, you're like, well, I haven't got that yet. I don't know what I'm, whether I'm going to get one or not. What do I have to wait for and expect? Um, you, you you know, it, it's a it's a very very reasonable question to ask. What you will find is if they are stapled securities rather than shares, you will you will that's a good sign because the reason there's different trust treatment uh, sorry tax treatments is I was about to say because they're trusts um, and the trusts have different tax treatments. So just bear that in mind in terms of the way you think about how you're allocating um, the tax and what you're expecting from. So if it's a if it's a REIT as you said or an ETF or a trust of some other script description, very very good chance you're going to get a tax statement from that uh, entity with that information. Uh, no easy solution, Scott, uh, in advance uh, to, to know whether to expect one from that company or not. They will just come or they won't come. I don't actually They will come they, though, won't like, they? I mean, they have they to They will, give- but if you, you can't start your tax in on the 3rd of August because you've got your group certificate and you've got your dividend statements, you want to start your tax straight away. If you lodge it in August, you might get it in October, a tax statement from somebody like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. Now I've got to go and change my tax return. So yeah. I get why Scott's asking. Okay, the timing yeah. well, of that. Just wait until you've got everything that you need. But they, they well, will that's, that's definitely. You're saying, give it but you're saying, to you. when, you know, saying you don't know when to wait for, right? You don't know if, if you don't know, you have, if it's the first time you owned it, the first tax year, you don't know if you're expecting it or not. So you don't know how long to wait to know whether you're right, you've got the information. Well, if you want that, somebody who wants to do their tax in August, you're like, well, do I have to wait or don't I? Have I got everything I've got or I'm not going to get it? And that's, yeah. you can't know in advance, unfortunately. It is, it is tough. I get what you Although they do tend to do it at the same time roughly each year. So just have a look at what, when they provided that statement last year. It's probably going to be around that. If you own it, if you own it for more than a year, that's that's exactly the easiest way to do it. In fact, that's what mother in law did this year. Mm. There was one security outstanding, so she had to wait for that to come in. Mm. She put that page with everything else, then sent off the accountant. It was yep. it was job done after that. Yeah, we got through it, mate. In not quite. No, it was a little bit over. We did pretty well. That was all right, wasn't it? That's all right. Yeah, it could have been worse. <laughs> it always could be worse. <laughs> mate, thank you for spending an hour with me. I've I've had a, a ball as always. We've got lots and lots of questions I'm really, really stoked about. And of course, as we get close to Christmas, lots of pre-records to do. So I look forward to seeing you on Friday if you join me. Excellent, you know it. Until then, full on. Cheers. 
The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691. Listener.